Well, good morning. Good to be with you all this morning. We are going to be in John chapter 17 as we wrap up our series in the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And uh, to set the stage, um, I just have to share something with you. I'm weird. Uh, I asked Heather, actually, I told you this was going to come back and bite you. But uh, I asked her right before, um, what about me is weird? And she said, oh, the list is too long to count. And it was like, thank you. Um, So I came up with my own list. These are a couple things that I think make me actually absolutely normal and everybody else weird. But um, everything goes with ranch, like ranch dressing. Um, You can put it literally on, I would say, almost anything. We'll specify Italian. I mean, if it's Italian... It needs ranch. It's pretty much a staple. The Italian is the pathway to get the ranch into your system, actually. So like spaghetti, lasagna, Alfredo, you name it, Italian, that is it. Um, I'm pretty dramatic, uh, not just up here, but um, like when my mom and I get together, it is like two peas in a pod, and it's like, I don't know why we're so dramatic, but we are. Uh, Also, another thing, I'm super OCD. I like all my numbers to be in increments of five, and then one that I think actually might actually make me pretty weird is I like when a body part falls asleep. Anybody else? Like, you you just love that feeling. I mean, I love it. Like, I'm sitting there, and, you know, everybody experiences it. You're a side sleeper. Your hand falls asleep. You roll over. Your hand slaps you in the face, and it's like, who's touching me right now? And then you realize it's your own hand. I realized uh, I went to a private Christian school, and we always had what's called chapel, where they would come, and we'd sing a couple praise songs, and then we would have uh, a speaker come and present something out of God's Word to us. And I realized that during chapel, if I would lean back, kick my knee, knee up on the chair in front of me, by the time the guy was done speaking, my entire leg from knee down was numb. I couldn't feel anything. And so then I stand up and roll my ankle and almost fall. And I loved it. Every chapel, every Friday, that's what I would do. But there were some things about it that I didn't like. And one aspect that I did not like about my leg falling asleep is there were times where it would not wake back up. And so, like, you know, you're like five minutes of, like, flopping your leg, walking. See, there's the dramatic side. But you're, you're walking, flopping this body part, and it's like, am I ever going to get this feeling back? Did I do permanent damage now that's not going to be reversed? And I, I just start being the catastrophizer that I am where I think the worst-case scenario in everything. I'm just thinking, my NBA career is gone. I'm not going to be able to run that half marathon at a record pace. And I'm just thinking like, man, this, this has kind of ruined all my possibilities that I had. And whenever a lot of you actually, this hits really close to home where you have an ailment, a part of your body is not properly working the way that it's supposed to, and you are experiencing the, it is hard to just do normal tasks. And how one part, like I remember when my back hurts, it's not just my back that hurts. But it's my neck, my shoulders, my legs, my arms. It affects everything. So now what about if we're not talking about actual physical bodies? But we're actually talking about what Paul calls the church, calls you all. The body of Christ. Where we have parts of the body that are not actually working the way they're supposed to. And we're actually told that that causes divisions and it actually hinders The productivity, just as if one part of your body is not able to make you perform at 100%, same thing when the body of Christ is not united 
It is hindering the productivity and the purpose and the mission that we are called on. Because we're in John chapter 17 where Jesus is about ready to go to the cross. He's about to go through the darkest moment in history. And he's saying this prayer before God. And he prays in John 17, 3, that we would have eternal life. And he says, this is what eternal life is, that they would know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And so we're, we're calling this heart of worship. We're at the heart of worship. It is relationship and like intimacy with God. And then he prays in John 17 later on when he's praying for the disciples, he's praying that we would be sanctified in truth. That the church would not be like the world, but that we would be set apart. And this is what truth is, God's word. So that we are holding firm to the word of God. And now he, he transitions and he now prays for us. He's praying for believers today who would hear from the disciples. And so I'm not even going to say it. We're going to let Jesus' words in John chapter 17, starting in verse 20. And this is our text for the day. So I'm going to ask if in honor of the reading of God's word, if you would please stand. We'll open in a word of prayer and then you may be seated. So John 17, 20, Jesus is saying, I do not ask for these only being the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. If you'll join me in prayer, Father God, we thank you. God, just uh, that you paved the way. God, that you accepted the sacrifice of Jesus, that he rose from the dead and that we have hope in God and that we are not to have this be alone, but God, that we have a body of believers. God, thank you for your word. And so I just pray that now as we dive into your word, God, let it be your word that springs forth. And as you promise, God, let it not return void. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. And so I want you to kind of put yourself in Jesus's situation. I mean, he is literally about to go through the darkest moment. Like he's about to be uh, spiritually tested, emotionally tested, physically tested. He's about to lose all relationship. Like the guys that have followed him for the past three years are about to abandon him. One of them is going to betray him. He's about to be scourged. He's about to have all the facial hair plucked out of his face. He's about to be whipped 39 times because 40 might kill you, and we don't want to kill you before we're actually ready for you to die. And then he's going to have a crown of thorns on his head. He's going to be humiliated, mocked, and then he's about to suffer the most humiliating and the most painful death the Romans could think of at that time. And they knew what they were doing. What would your prayer be? I mean, if you're like me, my prayer honestly would be like Jesus's, but not that prayer. 
My prayer would be like Jesus is, where I am an innocent man about to suffer all of this, and I'd be praying, God, remove this cup from me. Please, God, don't, don't let me go through this. God, I, no. Like, I would be begging God, probably not getting off of that. Please, I'm innocent, don't let me go through this. But look at what Jesus prays. Jesus does pray that, but he always turns it back to, not my will, but your will. He always has God's plan in line, in, in, in his mind. But then Jesus turns and he prays for us. I mean, on the darkest night of his life, he turns and looks to you, believers, who are going to hear through the word of the disciples. We're told in Ephesians, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, but it's built on the apostles and the prophets. Jesus, we're learning from, about Jesus through the disciples, and he's praying for you. And he repeats one specific prayer. He could have prayed for almost anything. God, I pray that they just be so spiritually doctrinated that they can give like a 13-point sermon with ease. God, I pray that they be able to just break down everything and like stand their ground. But instead, Jesus, he says one thing three different times. I pray that they may be one. God, my prayer for them who are going to hear from the disciples and believe, I pray, Father, just as you and I are one, may they be one. And so church, I want to ask you this morning, believers who have placed your faith in Jesus and identify with him, how are you doing at being one with fellow believers? And I don't mean just in a, oh yeah, we're all God's children, you know, like, yeah, I'll meet with you on Sunday morning, call that good. I'm talking about how are you actually doing and being united under the body of Christ, or united in the body of Christ. Being one. And, and there's no condescension here, honestly. There's no condemnation here. This is, I see it in my own heart, because I am a selfish, prideful human being. And I see where offenses happen. And instead of being united, division. I see where instead of attacking the true enemy, I am drawn to want to attack other believers. I'm not wanting to be united, but instead there's division happening left and right over and over. And so sadly, personal experience has been seeing even in my own heart, it's hard to be one. It's hard to be united when offenses and hurts and all that stuff truly does happen. It really does happen because we are imperfect people. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. Nor will I ever be until Jesus calls me home. And so there's going to be hurts. But Jesus' prayer on the night that he was betrayed is that we all may be one. And I'll be honest, there's reasons in God's word that he says to separate. Like there are accounts, like one is Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 15, where Jesus is saying that if your brother sins against you, you go to your brother. You go and you try and make things right. And then he says, if that doesn't work, if they still won't forgive you, you now go and get somebody and you go to them. And if they still won't accept and reconcile, you now go and get the church and you bring it before the church. And if they still won't be reconciled, he says, treat them as an outsider. But what we like to do is jump to step five. And I call it step five because Proverbs tells us if you can overlook an offense, it's to your benefit. But if you can't, you go directly to them. If it still doesn't work, you then bring somebody in. And all the way down, step number five, 
you are allowed to treat them as an outsider. But that is not the number one thing we jump to. We seek reconciliation above all things. So if they're unwilling to repent, Jesus says, treat them as an unbeliever. In Romans chapter 16, uh, Paul is talking about those who create divisions in the church. He says, be careful of them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there is a, a brother, so he's a member of the church. He is a believer who is sleeping with his father's wife. And the church is proud of it. Oh, look how welcoming we are. We have this guy who is living in open, unrepentant sin, and we're so happy to have him be here. And Paul ends that section by saying, we do not judge those outside of the church, but we judge those inside. And he says, you should hand him over to Satan for the saving of his soul so that he can repent and come back. And a lot of people believe in 2 Corinthians, it happened. But in that sense... And unrepentant, openly, like, I don't even care. I'm going to keep on living in this lifestyle. We are given the, the command to have nothing to do with them. Obviously, Galatians tells us if anybody is preaching against Jesus, anything other than Jesus, a false gospel, a false prophet, then yeah, have nothing to do with that. Second Thessalonians talk about those who are living an unruly life. Second Peter, Second John, and Third John all talk again about false prophets. And then Jude talks about people who are perverting grace, saying just keep on sinning, kind of like the first Corinthians guy. Like, you know what? Live however you want to live. Just keep on. God's grace covers over your sin, perverting the grace and the cross of Jesus. So those are the exceptions. Those are the biblical reasons that we are told that we can separate from a fellow believer. But the problem is, is that what happens is we make incidental issues, primary things based on preferences. We make incidental issues, primary things based on preferences. When people look at the church, they should see a body of believers united. United under the name of Jesus. Like, like not just, hey, we're all cheering for the same team. But like, hey, we are all on the same mission. We are all going for the same goal here. So what does it mean to be united? What are those primary things that we should be united under? I'll tell you what they're not. What are incidental things that are prime personal preferences? Pews or chairs? It's really, it doesn't matter. We'll go a little bit further. Hot topic here. Hymns or contemporary music or rap or gospel country? Those are, I know for some of y'all, I just said rap and that's like hold the phone there. I'm not talking gangster rap, but I'm talking about we hold tight to the message, not the method. And now here's the thing. We're not going to start rapping. You don't have to worry about that. But that is not a cause to be like, I'm done with those people because they sang that style of music. That is not a primary issue. Here's really what it can boil down to. Anything you might say, I don't like that would be a personal preference. If it comes down to, well, I just don't really like the way they, that's a personal preference. And the body of Christ is not built on personal preferences. It's built on the word of God. That is what we build this on. 
Not based on how much you like something or if we're in pews or chairs or we sing four songs or eight songs or any style of music that we have. You know what? We're not even singing the style of music they sang when Jesus walked this earth. Jesus didn't gather in a building. He walked out in a field. And so if that's what it takes, we hold on to the message of Jesus. The method might change. The message of Jesus is a primary thing. Being united, being one, means that we are all working alongside one another with the love of Christ, obeying God and his word, and being fully committed to his will. If that's in pews, fine. If that's in chairs, fine. If we tear this whole place down and go meet in a field, we're not doing that, but fine. If that's with hymns or contemporary music or gospel country or whatever, we hold firm to the message of Jesus. We unite under the word of God and we are fully committed to that. The method might change, but we don't break fellowship over the method. You know, the problem that I see is that a lot of Christians, and I'm guilty of this too, a lot of Christians spend more time fighting each other than we do fighting the real enemy. A lot of times when we hear the story, just like the, the man that came up to Jesus and he was like, good teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, what do the scribes say? And the guy says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. And then he says, the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We hear that. And just like that guy, it's like, okay, where's the escape clause? Who's my neighbor? Can you tell me who I have to love and who I can get away with not loving? And then Jesus goes on to share the parable of the Good Samaritan where it's like, hey, your neighbor doesn't look like you. Your neighbor may not even believe the same things as you. We're still called to extend love to them. So what does it mean when as believers we are looking for escape clauses to loving one another instead of looking for opportunities and vigorously, ambitiously pursuing those? There's so much infighting when there should be so much extending grace and love. Because you see, there really is an enemy out there. We are in a spiritual battle, but it's not one another. Your enemy is not a single person in this room. Your enemy is not a single person outside of this room. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. No human being is truly my enemy. But instead we wrestle against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What if we stopped fighting each other? And as Jesus prayed, we waged full-on war against the true enemy that is out there. Satan and the evil dominions that are holding so many souls captive. And we went and we tried to set them free. We can't. We provide the means. Jesus sets them free. But he is entrusting us with that message. But again, it seems like it is so easy to tear down God's church. So many people honestly aren't here today because they're like, I don't need God's people. I have Jesus and that's enough. Whereas Jesus is praying, God, make them one. May they be united. May they be together. Because twice in Paul's writing, he compares the church to the body of Christ. 
First time we see it is in Romans chapter 12. And so what Paul has just done, Romans chapter 1 all the way to Romans chapter 11, he has laid out the gospel. He has very clearly said it is not based on anything you do. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of those sins is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Romans 5.10 tells us that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. I mean, through those first 11 chapters, Paul is just saying it is all about Jesus. It's all about what Jesus has done. And then we get to Romans chapter 12, where Paul says, Therefore, because of everything that I've just talked about, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is kind of the basis of this series, spiritual worship. Your true act of worship is not what you do right here. It's what you do the rest of the time as well, 24-7. And what Paul is saying is 24-7, you die to yourself. You die to your pride. You die to your selfish ambition. You die to your unforgiveness, to your anger, to your, to your lust, to your sin. You die to everything about yourself. That's what a living sacrifice is. A daily death. You die today, you die tomorrow, you daily die to yourself. And so then he says, after that, he says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. Because what's the world going to tell you? Oh, they hurt you? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, get payback. Oh, they hurt you? Just walk away. And not just walk away in the sense of, I need my time, but walk away in the sense of, we're done, you're as good as dead to me. The world's going to say divide at all costs. If it doesn't, if it's not for your good, have nothing to do with it. He says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so we switch the way we think. It's not my good that I'm looking out for. I'm looking out for everybody else's good. I'm trying to elevate Christ. I'm trying to keep him at the front of my mind in everything. And then Paul goes on a couple verses later in verse 4. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And so Paul's saying, you guys are the body of Christ. And then the second time Paul brings this up is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Where he again is saying, you, the church, the body of believers, make up the body of Christ. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, nobody in the body cannot say I have no need here. He says in verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? So nobody here should say, I'm not needed. I have no purpose. I have no point. And then Paul goes on to say that nobody here should look at somebody else and say, boy, we'd be better off if they weren't here. Because he says in verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet. I have no need of you. He continues this in verse 26 where he says, If one member suffers, 
all suffer. When my back hurts, it throws out my entire system. When one person is hurting, we all hurt. When one person is saying that I don't need anybody else, it'd be like cutting off my foot, which is going to hinder my ability to carry out my purpose. He says, if one is honored, all rejoice together. And then he says, now you, I'm not talking metaphorically, you are the body of Christ and individually you are members of it. And so think of it this way. Paul, Romans 1 through 11, I would encourage you to read that. Read 1 through 16 even. But 1 through 11, everything Jesus has done. A week ago, we celebrated the darkest moment. We remembered it. The darkest moment in history. And then we celebrated the brightest moment in history. Knowing everything Jesus went through. So after knowing everything that Jesus went through, the scourging, the torture, the suffering, like Todd said, he literally bled out everything. Where when they pierced him, water came out. There was no more blood to bleed. After knowing all of that, how can we allow personal pride and selfish ambitions to cause division in the church, in the body of Christ? How can we allow, when I look at the cross of Jesus, how can I look at that and say, Jesus stopped at nothing for me to be connected with him? And then knowing that Jesus' last prayer on this earth was, Father, I pray that they may be one. And I look at all of that and I say, forget it. I'm not doing it. When Jesus bled it all. He laid it all out for us to be one, for us to be connected. And that's Jesus' prayer. For unity in the body of Christ. And there's a purpose behind it. Because two times in his prayer, Jesus reminds us, this is why I want them to be one. This is why. He says in John 17, 21, that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our ability to be united is our testimony to the world. Not just your personal testimony, your testimony with your fellow believers. He repeats this in verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The world's going to be looking at the church to see the message that the church is proclaiming. How are we doing at not just proclaiming it, but actually living it out? Because here's the thing. I've heard this stat said that non-believers, before they look at Jesus, are going to look at the church. They're going to look at how are believers living their life. They're going to look at the testimony that you guys and I myself am living And so what message are we sending them? How is it that we can say, hey, Jesus died for all sins, but I'm going to hold a lot against you. And what message does it send to non-believers when they're thinking about, okay, you know, I I feel the draw of the spirit on my life. I want to give my life over to Jesus. And then they look at believers and believers can't love each other. And they're thinking, I know what I did last night. I know the deep secrets of my life. And if they don't love each other, how are they going to love me? And how is God possibly going to love me? 
They're looking to see what message are we proclaiming. And so how are we doing at living out that message? Not just saying, hey, we're supposed to be one, but a house divided. Because Jesus says a house divided cannot stand. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. He then says, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. He says, in the same way, let your good deeds be, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. We have a testimony to the world. Jesus' prayer in that testimony is that we be one, that you be united with one another. And, and, and I get it, because honestly, there are so many different upbringings here. I mean, we have, uh, just in my life, I was a Lutheran, Baptist, non-denominational, Pentecostal, Mennonite. I mean, like, that's all the, the, the denominational background that I bring. I am like the melting pot of denominations. And in this room, we have former Catholics, we have former Methodists, we have former uh, Presbyterians, we have uh, former non-believers altogether, where it's like, I never even stepped foot in a church. And we have all these different views, and all these different styles, and upbringings. And it's like, man, how in the world do we get everybody to be united when there is so much difference? It's like herding cats. Like they're going all over the place, not that you're cats. How do we get united? And Jesus answers this for us in John 17, 26. He says, I have made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. This is how we stay united. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them. If you want to be a united front, if you want to wage war against truly what deserves having war waged against it, the enemy of this world, we remember the love of Christ in our life. It's like when you're driving down the road. My mom used to always ask me when I was learning how to drive, do you know how far you travel when you look away? Depends on how fast you're driving, but you're moving. Anybody ever do this? You're driving down the road, you look away, and then you look back, and that ditch suddenly is coming really, really fast. And the reason you went into that ditch is because you took your eyes off of where you were going. If you want to stay united, you fix your eyes on the true thing, Jesus and God's word. The writer of Hebrews tells us, okay, so if we're supposed to run this race, Hebrews chapter 12, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off any weight and sin. Let us throw off pride and selfish ambition. Let us throw off getting our own way in our own personal preference. And instead, let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out before us. How do we do that? By fixing our eyes on Jesus. Not glancing to Jesus and then looking away. Not every now and then, all right, am I still on course? All right, I'm going to look over here. You lock on. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Let nothing pull you from the side, but you look at Jesus at all costs, the author and perfecter of our faith, who gave his life so that we could be one. We keep our eyes on God. 
We die to ourselves daily and we never forget the cross and the sacrifice that Jesus made. Because here's the thing, under the cross, we are all on a level playing ground. You might want to try and tout your own abilities, but when you bring it back to the cross, it levels everything. Because it's only through the cross that we have relationship with God. It's only through the cross that salvation has come. And so what we do is we do what John the Baptist said in John 3 verse 30. He said, I must decrease and Jesus must increase. Less of me every day, more of Jesus every day. May his light shine in my life. May his light shine in our life. Because when we look to our own interests, our own preferences, divisions are going to happen. They're going to happen. But when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, we are able to be united under his lead. And this is his prayer for us. That we may be one as he and the Father are one. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look to nothing else. And let's go wage war, carrying out the mission of God, being fully committed to his will, walking in his love daily, and being obedient to his word. His word is truth. Father God, again, we, we thank you, God. There is nothing that we could do. And so God, you've paved it all. But God, I just pray that as we realize the price that you paid, as that just kind of sinks in more and more as we grow in our walk with you, uh, God, may we see just what you did. And then may we extend that love. God, I, I just want to pray what Jesus prayed. May we be one. May we be united. And may we just wage war against the true enemy carrying out your mission faithfully until you call us home one way or another, God. May we be found faithful. And it's in the name of Jesus that I pray this.